Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about Music Masters Collective, a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. These events give you the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like the Fab Faux, Steve Earle, Richard Thompson, John Schofield, Nels Klein, the Milk Carton Kids, and many more. This June, join the Wait Band, featuring members of the band and the Levon Helm Band with special guests including Jimmy Vivino, Bob Margolin, Lost Leaders, Chris O'Leary, Cindy Cashdollar, Stony Creek Band, Rob Fraboni, Larry Packer, and so many more at Camp Cripple Creek. This all-inclusive music vacation in the Catskill Mountains of upstate New York promises to be a once-in-a-lifetime experience featuring performances, workshops, jams, comfortable lodging, and superb dining. Visit CampCrippleCreek.com slash Undermine to register today. That's CampCrippleCreek.com slash Undermine. Osiris. I never got to go to summer camp uh, as a kid, and I kind of was jealous of all my friends that did. And my friend Heather, who I saw most of the shows with, she started referring to it as we were going to fish camp. And honestly, that's what it felt like. It was just like such a joyous, positive experience. I don't know how many of the people that I would see in the show, like walking in or, you know, walking around at Setback. I don't know how many of them were going to all of the shows, but there was just this like real camaraderie among everyone who was attending that felt like the kind of camaraderie I imagined you'd feel at summer camp. You know, there's always like a positive vibe going around just at singular fish shows, much less runs, but this was definitely something special.
Doing the Baker's Dozen as a musician is extremely difficult. I can't even wrap my head around it. And Fish couldn't have done that 10 years into their career. I mean, this is something that they really had to build up to. And, you know, that combination of being free-flowing, improvisational, but also have this game plan. Not only to know as a musician that you're playing it for Madison Square Garden, but that it's being recorded forever. I mean, it's unbelievable how they could perform under that amount of pressure and I think it took that many years for them to not feel any pressure and just to turn it off and go out there and do what they do and there's no one better at that than them. I I think doing it in the same venue really helped because they were really locked into the sound. They're rested because they're not moving cities. Even the crew who can walk away, they don't have to set up in the, the next day. The crew is rested. So even when the band shows up, ev- the vibe is amazing because everyone is in a great mood. Everyone is dialing in their department, not just setting it up in a rush in the next city. I think for the band, because they're in one place, not only are they rested, but they could wake up in the morning and, and put in the work that needs to happen. And it must have been an unbelievable amount of work and coordination to do the Baker's Dozen, to know all those complex songs. I mean, they can't wake up in the morning and play Forbin. I mean, maybe they could, I, I, but I, I truly like, or It's Ice. I mean, these songs are Reba. These sections that are composed are so unbelievably complicated. They just did something that would never occur to another band, and even if it did, they would never do it to themselves. (laughs) And for Fish, like, it was fun. It was hard work, but they had so much fun doing it. The fans loved it, and it produced some really great things subsequently in the years that have come since. It was as if it was almost one show. You know, it was a 26-set show. <laughs> that's kind of the way it felt, where they just, it, that's kind of the way I saw it, and that's kind of how I feel how they approached it, you know, as, as one, one thing. You know, one of my favorite things about the Baker's Dozen is that, that casual feeling. All the band members talked about that. It, you know, this is what happens when you play a residency, so you start to feel relaxed, and there's this casual thing. But I love that as an audience member as well. It wasn't stressful to go to, to most of these shows. There were a couple that I bought tickets for like that day. It, was, it wasn't crazy like that. Emotionally, it drove me forward. I still think back to that. I always think about the fact that Fish has been operating at such a high level for such a long time. It gives me hope that there's always this opportunity to do more, to achieve more, to never give up, to realize that if you get knocked down, Fish has been knocked down before, but man, they get up and they come back stronger. The Baker's Dozen was a moment in time. It was three weeks in the middle of an absolutely horrific presidency, in the middle of my life that was kind of in turmoil, in the middle of a lot of my friends' lives that were going through big transitions. Personally, for me, the the lasting impact of the Baker's Dozen are the relationships I solidified during those three weeks in the summer of 2017. 
it made me realize the you know emotional weight I'd been carrying around that I needed to really deal with. It was definitely pretty emotional. We had all been on this journey together that lasted three weeks. And going to fish shows, it's always like a joint experience between us and them. And so you could tell that they, it was like they couldn't believe they did this. And, and that's how I felt. And I was up pretty close on like page corner floor a little bit. And, and so just, I don't know, it, I, I felt like I, we did it, you know? <laughs> that's how I felt. Like we did it. We made it to the end. And it was incredible. And I'm so grateful to have experienced this with the band and then all my friends and then people who I made new connections with and friends who were at home who couldn't be there. I think we all knew that it was something really special and something that hadn't been done before. And, you know, this many years later, like being a Fish fan and, and them in their career, for them to still be able to do something like this and surprise us and create something together, that's how it felt. Susie Barros, Dan Cantor, Rob Mitchum, Charlie Miller, Jesse Jarno, Sam Timberg, Carla No. Those seven voices you just heard have been riding shotgun with us for season three of Undermine. And as we pull up to the season finale, we want to leave you feeling like you just walked out of Madison Square Garden after witnessing officials raise a fish banner to the rafters. A feat that should have probably been impossible. Not because fish was now up there on the high beams alongside some of the greatest sports legends of all time, but rather because it was improbable that those rafters themselves still existed at all, considering the fact that Fish blew the roof off the building night after night for three weeks straight. Thirteen shows, all victories. An undefeated season. And with that, it's Undermine's undefeated season finale. I'm Tom Marshall. I write lyrics for the band Fish, and I'll be your tour guide, your Fish tour guide, for the next hour. But you already knew that because you're not just joining us for the first time right now, are you? This isn't your first undermine, is it? If it is, well, you're late to the garden party, because this season we travel back in time to the summer of 2017 and landed at 4 Pennsylvania Plaza in New York City, where ushers already scanned our tickets, security guards already searched our stashes, and Fish already blew our minds. 13 times. Probably a lot more than that for most of us. But this season, we've been celebrating Fish's storied 13-night run at MSG in the summer of 2017, America's biggest jam band at the world's most famous arena. The run was known as the Baker's Dozen, and as we've detailed in the previous four episodes, all 13 nights felt like one continuous show, or perhaps one giant donut of an experience. Speaking of donuts, it's time to make them. We'll be right back. Wow, 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 wow,
That was fun. Still with us? It would be weird if you weren't because how would you be hearing this? We were saying right before the break that this season has been all about fish as baker's dozen. 13 shows, 237 songs, no repeats. There were 13 different corresponding donut flavors, one per show. But for those with perfect attendance, all 13 shows comprised one singular experience. Fish had masterfully designed their set list so that if you attended just one night, you still got a complete show with jams, bust-outs, hits, curiosities, and catharsis, and you went home happy. But if you attended all 13, well, you went home a changed person and an exhausted one at that. The final weekend of the Baker's Dozen featured lemon, Boston cream, and glazed donut flavors with corresponding show themes. They crossed the finish line with one of the best jams of the entire three weeks, a topical debut, and a Baker's Dozen-specific inside joke that everyone paying attention was in on. We hope you enjoyed yourselves as much as we did. A lot of people have been asking me, is this still on, boy? It is. After the Baker's Dozen, Fish took about a month off before returning for their traditional Labor Day summer closeout at Dick's Sporting Goods Park, right outside of Denver. Followed by, wait for it, oh wait, it was five years ago, so it already happened, and you already know, yes, four more shows at Madison Square Garden to close out the year. That means Fish played MSG a remarkable 17 times in 2017. But the story of 2017 is now the ghost of 2017. That ghost, which still follows fish around, and on off days, can still be seen floating around the sky bridge at MSG, is The Baker's Dozen. The Baker's Dozen I've always seen as a moment in time that exists almost without reference to like before and after. That's not the ghost, that's our friend, Dave Calarco, of Mr. Miner's Fish Thoughts, giving us his fish thoughts. And, you know, I feel like a lot of the jams in that run have a signature sound all to itself. However, one element that they had started to develop over the course of the prior years, feel good music on some level. A lot of major key jams where they would just kind of find this flow and create these like really blissful, triumphant, textures and conversations in the redevelopment of their jamming after 2012. If anything, that was one of the parts of this signature Baker sound that kind of carried through the couple weeks was like, there's a lot of feel good music. And I think that reflects a lot of where the band was mentally and comfort wise in their careers. If you feel good, it's going to translate in how you play and what you play. Baker's Dozen effect had ripples that reached every corner of Gamehenge. But let's start with the musical consequences, for we can still hear echoes of the Baker's Dozen effect at nearly every show in the modern era of the past five years of Fish's concerts. 
Here to help decipher what we mean by that is musicologist and fellow fish geek, Jake Cohen. It was like three to seven 20-minute jams per year from 2010 to 2016. And then in 12 in 2018, 10 in 2019, and 19 last year, 2021. And that's not counting the, the three shows we should have gotten in 2021, where we probably would have gotten at least another one or two. And if you look at the 30-minute jams, there's been five since the Baker's Dozen. And if you don't count the storage or the drive-in or sound check jams, there was only one before the Baker's Dozen in all of 3.0. Okay, Cohen is speaking the language of our friend, the timer, Zizix also known as David Steinberg, because, as he just detailed, the Baker's Dozen absolutely has led to the band's current return to long-form jamming that had been missing throughout much of 3.0. Could it be that the Baker's Dozen turned Fish, our favorite jam band, into even more of a jam band? And as far as like a a lingering effect, you know, of the Baker's Dozen, you know, as we stand here five years later, I, I think that lingering effect is evidenced by the level of Fish's jamming on recent tours. I think there's been a clear willingness since that time to go deeper on songs, to push songs further out, to do more exploring. Two of the top 10 longest jams in Fish history have come since the Baker's Dozen, and five of the six longest jams since their return in 2009 have come since the Baker's Dozen. I know length doesn't always make a jam, but the fact that they're willing to push out and experiment speaks volumes. And, you know, we've also seen some songs that were debuted during that run stick around and show up in later set lists like Strawberry Letter 23, You Sexy Thing, and most events aren't planned. So I think the fingerprints of the Baker's Dozen are really on every tour since then. And I really think the challenge of pulling it off, you know, changed them, creatively inspired them beyond just those 13 shows and continues to do so to this day. That was Matthew Ascone, a fan with Baker's Dozen perfect attendance accolades. For the perspective of American music critic Stephen Hyden, Let's get American music critic Stephen Hyden speaking for himself and for the American Institute of Rock and Roll. You know, at the time of the Baker's Dozen, Fish had been a band for, I guess, 34 years. And typically when a band gets to that point, if they're still together, there is inevitably a certain business-like familiarity that settles in. You know what it takes to be successful, you know what your audience likes, and it really becomes a matter of just satisfying those expectations. It can become kind of like a punch the clock, I think, situation for a lot of rock bands in that position. What the Biggers doesn't did for Fish is take them out of that familiarity. It put them in a situation that I think for any other band on earth would have been extremely uncomfortable and, and really impossible. I don't think that there's another band that would even dare to attempt what Fish attempted and pulled off with the Baker's Dozen. And if you can do something like that, as a band who has been around a long time and done many things in their career, it can't help but give you the confidence to keep experimenting and attempting other ambitious projects. And I think we've seen in the years since the Baker's Dozen that fish have continued to you know push things forward doing ambitious projects you know doing things again that like no other band would attempt 
And I just wonder, like, if, if, if they hadn't climbed the mountain of the Baker's Dozen, if they would have had the confidence to say, for instance, to write a fictional album uh, of, you know, synth pop songs and play them in Las Vegas, you know, a few years later. I don't know if they would have had that confidence or even felt like that's something that their audience would have wanted. It just rejuvenated them, I think, in a lot of ways. And since they seem to be inseparable, almost as if they host a podcast together or something, here's Haydn's co-host, Rob Mitchum. They really did, you know, intentionally or not, treat the Baker's Dozen as a laboratory for, you know, what does a fish show mean in, you know, 2017 and, and onward. And so a lot of the way they approach those shows, I think, has carried through to subsequent shows in terms of, you know, more inventive set lists and more openness to creativity happening at any moment, improvisation happening in unexpected places, resisting predictability in a way that they've always done, but, you know, have been a little less zealous about at different times in fish history. Baker's Dozen, more than anything else, demonstrates how good fish are at challenging themselves, reinventing themselves, not doing the same thing over and over again, even at this very late point in their career. There's really no other example you can think of in rock music of a band that would do something like this to themselves 30-some years in. The Baker's Dozen meant that they were still propelling themselves forward. They were still wanting to push themselves creatively. And not that anyone ever thought like 3.0 is, is them just sort of coasting along. I mean, they've every tour every year has offered something new and special. But this was like, wow, they're really taking things to the next level with this. Like, I can't believe like at this point in their career, they're attempting something as major as this. I mean, it just meant that like their best years are still happening and they were, I don't know, they're so, they feel so happy to be still playing and just always wanting to continue doing creative, fun things, never sort of like resting on their laurels. the pandemic and everything and Trey just doing the Beacon Residency and this past summer fall tour and Halloween it just kept getting better and better to the point where those Halloween shows were just unbelievable and you know achieving peaks that they've never achieved before and just constantly reinventing themselves like some of the playing that they have been doing this past year is just un unbelievable. I can't believe it. I can't believe that they're still playing so well. And like the culmination on Halloween that they'd sort of been building up to, especially with all of Cage's synth effects.
you've forgotten her name, that was Susie, Susie Barros. She's not a sociologist, and she's probably not going to be checked by a neurologist, but we are. We're going to go check our head while you check our sponsors, and we'll meet by will call in just a minute. There you are. We've been looking all over. Okay, we're back. Dude, the baker's dozen ended like five years ago, way before that commercial. So then why are you still here and why are we still discussing it today, five episodes into a season dedicated exclusively to those 13 shows? I think it's up there as one of the most important things that the band has ever done. Up there with Big Cypress. Thanks, Scott Marks. Once the band gets the ball rolling, the fans pick up and usually don't put it down. Like, they just keep going. I mean, it's five years later and we'll start talking about these shows. I know we'll keep talking about them and keep talking about them. But it does give inspiration for another round of this, and or at least to look back and realize this was special. You should put this on a mantle along with Big Cypress and the Halloween shows and a couple others here and there, because those are the ones that are the Hall of Fame for fish. Thanks, fan art Pete Mason. The Baker's Dozen ended up being this perfect combination of a constraint that they set for themselves with this idea of coming up with interesting set lists based around a theme. You have the no repeats rule, which is very important, of course, because similar to the Fuck Your Face show, they're almost forced to take songs longer and to dig deeper into the catalog simultaneously in order to fill 26 sets of music without repeating themselves. But then you also have the donut theme on top of that, which is forcing them to play songs in juxtaposition that they normally wouldn't to break old habits of hey we play song a and song b in the same set a lot of the times but song a fits this theme and song b fits this theme so they're going to turn up in different shows and it also led to them learning new covers which was very important as well to the run by injecting some new material and some new playful genre things that they hadn't done before to match this theme uh, really, The Baker's Dozen is just a, is it's turned out to be one of the best examples of how fish putting constraints on themselves produces magic. Thanks, Rob Mitchum. And so they come out in 2018 summer in a very different direction. A lot of the jams were much darker than a lot of the Baker's jams, which very melody driven and triumphant. Trey comes out with markedly different tones, like highlighting this Leslie tone that he used, which kind of created this very different guitar sound that kind of brought him more into the background of the music, which was very counter to what we've been talking about with these like very clean melodic leads that define so many of the Baker's jams. So he almost like went in the other direction and really just tensionally played differently. That allowed, I felt, for Paige and Mike to kind of step up and lead jams in different directions in 2018. I do think that some of the focus on textures and layers that maybe started in the Baker's Dozen with Paige, Trey kind of took on that, that direction with his guitar playing and began taking this idea of approaching jams in a textural way but applying it in a different direction musically in summer 18. Mm-hmm. 
Trey has also, in the years following the Baker's Dozen, explored a lot more variants of tone and texture. You know, when we look at Trey's playing of the Baker's Dozen, there's a lot of classic, clean, melodic leads throughout these jams, almost like a throwback version of Trey with his classic sound. And then in the years after that, it's been less of a focus on that sound, more experimental tones and textures as well. And so I feel like Paige and Trey both moved in this direction that have enabled Fish to create jams that just began sounding differently than anything they have done previously. And, you know, when you look at Fish, that's what they're all about, right? Is continuing to push forward and, and do different things. And so I guess more than anything, I see Paige's sense as being a means to that end. Thank you, Mr. Calarco. But the Baker's Dozen Effect, the residency's takeaways, and its aftermath isn't just about the band. It's also about the fans and the connection between the two. Let's hear from one of the fan voices from this season of Undermine, Diana, two N's, Hank. So we were fully in this groove of 3.0. I think we were having more up years, more down years. There wasn't, I don't think, say it was like a full upwards trajectory of their progress. And I think the undertaking of the Baker's Dozen was a massive accomplishment for them. And I think that it showed both themselves and their fan base that they were capable of anything, probably gave them as a band an insane amount of confidence and comfort in that what they were doing was still good, that we were still here for it, that they could take these risks, that they could try new things and continue to create as artists and we would still be here for it and that the well had not run dry you know 34 years into their existence as a band they were still able to surprise and delight their fans and still bring that amount of joy and satisfaction to their fans as they did 20 years prior in their what people call their peak The jamming is different. It's not as long or it's not as fast or technical, but it's, it's, it's something else. Change happens. People get older and we have to learn to love in different ways. And the fact that we learned that it's not all just about big jams. It's about creative set list writing. It's about taking risks. It's about changing the ways songs are played and what gets jammed and what doesn't. Finding new covers that fit the catalog and just basically being fish, <laughs> that that's what they're, what they're good at, what they can continue to do and will be successful doing hopefully until who knows when, another 20, 30 years.
it's almost you know how they people talk about like you have that one trip and it changes your perspective or, or that one experience people go to south america and do peyote or whatever that had like change their outlook on life forever like now i might seem a little heavy-handed and that's kind of what doing that for two weeks in that mindset with no other cares in the world does to you a little bit it's a very changing experience right and it's also a very filling experience for those who drank the kool-aid or in this case ate the donuts it sounds like that guy did both and by that guy we mean our friend tim donahue aka weekend wook another voice from this season Here's someone we haven't heard from in a while, Dean Budnick. To my mind, the legacy of the Baker's Dozen, it's really about creativity and connection. And I mean both of those in a lot of different ways. After appearing on Undermine last season, Budnick was featured on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, talking about Ticketmaster. Not just the company, but also the book he wrote about the company and unconscionable business practices that screw over music fans. We promised him we'd waive our service fees if he came back. First off, connection. Number one, anytime you hear any of the band members talk about the Baker's Dozen, I think the first thing they mention is it demonstrates their personal connection, their affection for one another, and that there's no way that they could have pulled it off but for the fact that they have this long-term relationship that continues to thrive. And that was really put into effect, right? Trey calls Fishman on the way to the garden and asks him if he wants to do a Velvet Underground song with just about no notice because all of a sudden it occurs to him while he's headed in. And Fishman says, sure, that sounds great. And the band works on that because they have that connection, they have that relationship. The same thing with Oh Holy Night. Again, Trey's daughter suggests that to him the day before the Donut Hall show. Trey begins looking up acapella arrangements at home that night, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. in the morning. Comes in the next day and the band works it up just like they worked up so much material over the course of that run. So really part of it is just, to my mind, the legacy is just affirming, fostering, furthering the relationship among the four band members. But above and beyond that, there's also that connection with the audience. And Baker's Dozen absolutely does that. It demonstrates that there is this very special connection between Fish and this rather intense, committed collective of fans who believe so deeply in the music and what Fish can offer them on any given night, that whether they go to one show, whether they go to 13, whether they only are able to stream the shows or listen after the fact, there, there's so much that revealed itself that all of those fans absorbed and then contributed their own energy to it. And I think that the band really reciprocated in the way that Fish has historically had that special reciprocal relationship with an audience. When I interviewed Fishman for Long May They Run, he was talking about the image that's on the Baker's Dozen, the, the three CD set 
that Trey said was really profound to him and asked, you know, Fishman to figure out what it was. Fishman said, oh, I thought it was a bunch of happy people. But Trey's point was if you look at this particular photo from the run, no one has a cell phone in his or her hand. They're all there in the moment with the band, just as the band is in the moment. So that's that's a big part of what the Baker's Dozen represented and, and what it accelerated, what it catalyzed, and what has continued on into the future. I, I also think of a conversation that I have with Trey for Relics. This wasn't about the Baker's Dozen. This was about a Madison Square Garden show 18 months later on December 30th, 2019. But as he looked back on YouTube at this tweezer from the night that he had somehow come across by accident, he said, the thought that went through my mind as I was watching it was that whoever just went to the bathroom had as much of an effect on this jam as any of the musicians. And while that certainly referred to, again, a December 30th show, I think that same sort of connection also is relevant in thinking about the Baker's Dozen. Embedded in the Baker's Dozen effect, then, is what's known as the butterfly effect, and it manifests itself in an infinite number of invisible ways. Does someone chatting their friend's ear off right behind you affect whether or not Trey ripcords the jam into possum? Sure. Go ahead and blame on. But the Baker's Dozen had another kind of more lasting butterfly effect on the band when you zoom out for the overhead view. Decisions they made during those 13 shows, both setlist-wise and musically, have turned into ripples, some of which have turned into waves, some of which have crested, and some of which have rolled into high tide on Prussia's shores. Yeah, I would think that that was the event that freed them from this constrained template thinking of what a fish show was supposed to be. I think that since then, we have seen a lot more jamming in first sets in summer 18, fall 18, and certainly this past fall. I think there is a bravado post-Bakers where the band is more comfortable with a lack of structure, whether that be in a larger macro set list context or even in a specific micro jamming context where there's less concern about following a set plan. And I think that has informed the years following Baker's and I think that has added adventure to fish shows. That was Calarco again. Trey Anastasio is such a self-examined performer, musician, improviser, songwriter, band leader, and thinker that he is often quick to contextualize his art with an appropriately philosophical frame. Let's go back to Dean Budnick, who is about to inadvertently demonstrate what we mean. It's not only about what happened on the stage. I just interviewed Trey for Relics solely about his songwriting, and he was talking about how Every day for him, he aspires to have this profound creative experience. And that's how he walks through life. And he credits his mother and even his grandmother for inspiring him to do that. And certainly Trey and his bandmates hit new heights 
at the Baker's Dozen, but I think all of them took something away that they brought to their musical careers outside of Fish or their songwriting processes that they applied then to Fish or to other settings. And you can look and see the, the songs that came out that ensued once the run finished and the band members were, were off. Because if you remember, after the Baker's Dozen, there were some Dick's shows, then there's another MSG run at the end of the year, and then there aren't any shows until July of 2018. But throughout that period, the Baker's Dozen just had the band members creatively buzzing that led to a lot of new music that they created, and then ultimately found its way onto the stage and was recorded as well by the individual band members. For him, there's not just improvisation on stage, there's improvisation that informs his songwriting. His songwriting process is improvisational. So when you come off stage with all of that energy and then you manifest it in a new way, that leads to new creative work. And I, and I very much believe that's part of what came out of the Baker's Dozen. Fish Right Now is in a renaissance that began at the Baker's Dozen. By virtue of being at the same place for 13 nights in a row, by virtue of the no-repeat rule that they imposed on themselves for those 13 nights, and by virtue of them successfully making each one of those nights a spectacular and insular event, and yet part of a bigger picture, they somehow pushed the hidden hyperdrive button on the fish spaceship, the big boat, to boldly go where no band has gone before. In the five years since The Baker's Dozen, Fish's repertoire has continued to grow at a starving artist's pace. They've integrated enough new material to extend their streak and add an entire leg to their no-repeat residency if they wanted. There's iRock, a complete album's worth of material from their alter-ego Cosvote Voxed. There's Get More Down, a double album's worth of material from their futuristic superhero identity, Sci-Fi Soldier. And don't discount new post-Baker's Dozen standards like Soul Planet and Set Your Soul Free that are likely to take up prime real estate at any show where they are featured. During the pandemic, Trey recorded and released two albums of all new material, the first of which, Lonely Trip, yielded immediate new rotation songs, including a few that I co-wrote with him. Then there's Trey's project Ghosts of the Forest, which further expanded the Fish songbook with crossovers like Ruby Waves and Drift While You're Sleeping. Meanwhile, Mike Gordon has continued to contribute to the Post-Baker's Dozen songbook as well, including this gem with the classic Gordo touch, Mull. (laughs) 
Not only did Fish pull off a high-profile 13-night residency without any repeats, but then two years later in the fall of 2019, they quietly pulled off an entire tour without any repeats, and no other rock band has ever attempted that either. That's also quite a feather to put in their dry goods beanie. Here to talk about that is Undermine head writer Benji Eisen. The views expressed are his own and do not necessarily reflect Osiris's, unless you agree with them, and then give us a positive review or something. Okay, Benji. There's a lot of new material, right? And and a lot of it is great. But I don't think that the new material alone is the source of the current renaissance. It's a confluence of two things. It's the result of this confidence that they were given in 2017 because of the Baker's Dozen. It's a confidence in knowing that, unbelievably, some of their best moments might actually still be ahead of them. You know, not behind them, as is literally the case with, I think, every other band out there that has existed for even half as long as Fish has. So there's that. And then the pandemic is the other factor. You know, the amount of time that they're stuck in their living rooms and in their rubber jungles. When you take the 4.0 jams, you know, as crazy and as kinetic and as confident and, and otherworldly, too, as they sound, there's also this casual element to them. The music itself is as intense as ever, but the musicians themselves, when you watch them playing these 4.0 jams, they're relaxed up there. Now, would they have gotten there otherwise? Quite possibly, sure. But the Baker's Dozen is what Kit started it in this timeline, in this verse of the Fish multiverse. I think Baker's Dozen was something that gave them, them being 3.0 Fish, this turbo boost. Right when they needed it, right when it needed it, and the turbo boost, the gunpowder, it said, said, hey guys, it's full steam ahead. Look forward, not back. And then you bottle up that energy for two years of a a pandemic, which no one could have seen, and then it's Fish Unleashed at the end of that. 4.0 Fish. It's like riding in the back of the worm, but this time, your hair is also on fire. That sounds dangerous. Please don't try that at home. It's not fair to the worm. The Lawn Boy jam stands out to me as a moment that just seems so quintessentially fish to me. Because it does seem like a comment that fish is making on themselves. That's Stephen Hyden again making a verbal comment about a musical comment by fish about fish. And there is a pranksterish quality to that performance. I actually think the jam is like really good, but it's more the idea that they're jamming out probably the least likely song. They know it and they know the audience knows it. And as much as people are enjoying the music in that moment, it really is about the gesture of Fish doing that. I think if you're a fan of this band, that is one of the appealing things about them, that they have this reverence side for musical tradition but they also have the the irreverent side they are i think one of the only bands right now that on one hand can produce a classic arena rock performance and look but they're not doing it in a straightforward way you know they're winking at the audience while they're doing it and it's not irony you know they're not doing this like u2 zoo tv like where they're you know, satirizing arena rock. It's part of the celebration of it, but they're not just wearing the costume and playing on people's nostalgia in a way that a lot of bands who do that kind of thing do it. They're evoking that spirit in an original way, which again, I think that's a very difficult thing to do. And they and they pull it off. (laughs) 
be clear, it is not that Fish had never surprised and delighted us with unexpected Type 2 scenic drives in the middle of songs that traditionally don't jam. Sure, Jam Night was their first time opening up Lawn Boy, but there were seemingly random nights before Haydn's time in 1.0 where specific versions of Stash, Haley's Comet, Susie Greenberg, Funky Bitch, Son of a Mule, ACDC Bag, and others fell into an improvisational wormhole, becoming an instant Hall of Famer that we still listen to and talk about to this very day. But in 4.0, that kind of thing now seems to happen nightly, and as a trend, you can absolutely trace that back to the summer of 2017 as a result of the Baker's Dozen effect. When we come back, we'll make our final donut jokes and put away our ticket stub scrapbooks because we're in the final stretch of the season finale. Did we save any donuts for the last bites? Don't give up hope. Keep streaming. The aftermath of the Baker's Dozen five years later has a permanent physical reminder that can be seen hanging from the rafters of Madison Square Garden to this day. And if a dangling textile doesn't impress you, forget the banner. The lasting impacts of the Baker's Dozen can still be smelled in all four districts of Gamehenge and across all nine cubes of the Fishverse. Add that up and you get 13 flavors. Now 13 backwards is 31, and so we'll leave it to some of our favorite basement analysts, meme makers, armchair provocateurs, and weekend wooks to piece together the imagined implications of a 31 flavors tease. Here's something real, a final truth from the Baker's Dozen. Reverberations from jams that took place inside that famously famed arena in Midtown Manhattan are still being felt 96 miles away in a commercial confectionery kitchen in Philadelphia. It changed Federal Donuts in the way that we were like, oh wow, we can do a really big project like this that is like logistically challenging and also a delivery out of town. So I think it gave us a boost of confidence in ourselves. And also I was so impressed with the team and especially the kitchen and Chef Matt who really just made it happen. And I was like, oh wow, we really can do anything. That's Felicia D'Ambrosio co-founder of Federal Donuts and longtime lifelong fish fan. It showed the world that fish is literally one of the greatest rock and roll bands that will ever be on this planet. I think they showed that to their fans themselves and non-fans as well. No other band would even like do it, right? I mean, The Dead played like a lot of consecutive shows at the Garden, but nothing is really like The Baker's Dozen. That's going to do it for us. My name is Tom Marshall, and I approved all of this, and now I'm out of here. Almost. Don't worry, I'll be back. Thanks for tuning in to our five episodes about 13 flavors of fish and that 2017 summer tour where the band's final stop was three weeks long. It's been fun to look back, but it's always better to look ahead. Before we rub our crystal balls or search for Orange Beach in Google Maps, if you are just joining us this season... Check out our first two seasons and catch up on your way to Alabama. I don't remember what they were about, but I'm sure they had something to do with fish. 
and with us, the fish community, a vibrant sum greater than all the versions of Ass Handed combined. As for the look ahead, stay tuned after these brief credits for a very special preview at what we promise has absolutely nothing to do with Undermine Season 4. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, Matt Dwyer, and Benji Eisen. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. It is written by Benji Eisen. Production assistance from Rob Mitchum, Matt Bavuso, Christina Collins, and Nick Sejas. Original music by Amar Sastri. Art by Mark Dowd. Thank you to all our interviewees, and thank you, of course, to our listeners. We'll see you all next season. Next season, not on Undermine, Sam Tinberg. Individually, the Baker's Dozen made me realize the importance of relationships in my life, the you know emotional weight I'd been carrying around that I needed to really deal with. But I think from the band standpoint, it felt like a reset that didn't need a break or a hiatus. It felt like we're going to do something new. We don't need to take time away from this, but we're going to challenge ourselves. We're not going to play any repeats. We're going to play around with these set lists. We're going to think about each show. We might not have anything really selected before we go out there, but you know, we're going to have an idea and we're going to go out there and we're going to execute and we're going to have a great time. You know, I think there was this like same thing you kind of felt after Big Cypress. This kind of like letdown afterwards because they were like so intensely in it. But then you had this pandemic break and holy shit, they came back on the other side, like stronger than I've ever seen them and as strong as I think they've ever been before. And I don't think 2021 could have existed without the Baker's Dozen. Like, I think they knew they could operate on an incredibly high level, but I think the Baker's Dozen burned a lot of people down a little. It's just emotional wreckage by the end and uh, trying to get back into it. And then all of a sudden they were gone. Whoa, like... You gotta appreciate it while you have it. And then when they came back, I had hopes that it would be a good tour. I had hopes that it'd be a fun tour. I never would have expected that 2021 could have brought us the kind of music that it did. And I think that for me is the lasting message from the Baker's Dozen is there's always a chance to do more. There's always a chance to achieve more. There's always a chance to be happier. There's always a chance to be more fulfilled. The band proves that over and over. They always come back and they always have something up their sleeve. And I find that really heartening. It builds me up emotionally to see the band operating on a high level because they've set their minds to something and they keep doing it better. And I hope in my life, as I keep trying to grow and learn and emotionally mature, that I can take that same lesson and, and realize that there's there's always more to do, there's always more to achieve.
Osiris. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast.